0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley, one of the associate editors, and today I'm going to be taking you through everything exciting happening in August 2018. So where should we start this month? I think we can start with, well, there's a whole range of papers in the EMJ this month as per usual. There's trials, there's reviews, there's some narrative, and there's also some opinion. And that's pretty, that's right for emergency medicine, isn't it? We're a very broad-based specialty and there's an awful lot going on. So a nice broad range of papers, get out there and read them. But what shall I put you in touch with first? I think I'm going to start with a review paper by Mohammed Elwan and colleagues around the use of fluids therapy, which I think is really important. I mean, fluid therapy is one of the most commonly prescribed therapies in the ED, probably is beyond paracetamol, It's probably is the most... Yes, I reckon probably the most prescribed therapy in the ED, and we all do it. We all have opinions on it, and we've all probably read a whole bunch of contradictory and opinionated information on the pros and cons of the various different types of wet stuff that's around and available to us. In practice, the world really does seem to be divided into those who are obsessively compulsive and dogmatic about their fluid choice versus those who are happy with, oh, I'll have a bit of wet stuff. And... Clearly, the sensible position is going to be somewhere between those extremes, such that we can match our fluid strategies to the patient and their pathology. But actually, the evidence base for a lot of things isn't that great. And there's a whole bunch of stuff out there with... um, New trials coming out, looking at things like balanced fluids versus saline and stuff. And again, the evidence isn't quite there. So Tim Harris, Mohamed Elwan, wan um, other colleagues have put together a really interesting paper to shine a light on the evidence, the physiology, and the decision-making that we should all be expert in. So it's a must-read article, really. In brief... The use of crystalloids is advocated for non-blood resuscitation with some preference for balanced solutions. As I said, the evidence isn't fantastic. Um, But you may be surprised at just how abnormal the solution known as normal saline is. It's not normal at all. You should know this. It really isn't normal. We should stop calling it that. And as for how much, how quickly, and when to stop fluids then, that is a complex question, perhaps an area where we need to upskill ourselves in order to to more reliably quantify a patient's response to therapy. Now, if you know Tim Harris, you'll know um, his love of ultrasound and therefore you won't be surprised to hear that ultrasound may well have a role here. And I think actually that's one of the areas where my colleagues, I think we do need to think about upskilling around the measurement about the response to fluids in a better way. Okay, so read that. You kind of got to read it. It's so important. Where should we go next? Um, Good to see um, that we got a a well-conducted, randomized controlled trial in the journal this month. So a trial looking at IV kefazolin versus oral probenicid versus awful, uh, awful, oral kefalexin in skin and soft tissue infections. That was not a Freudian slip, I promise you. Um, So it's good to see RCTs, especially those that challenge the practice of IV therapy for skin and soft tissue infections, because there's a lot of places that just admit all of these people and you probably don't need to. So this is a non-inferiority trial, and there's a nice, interesting paper I think by Dan Horner in the EMJ about non-inferiority trials. You might want to check out, um, and it's by Dale al. demonstrates that oral cefalexin is an entirely appropriate alternative to probenecid, probenecid, or IV kefazolin. I wish these people would make these drugs easy to pronounce. It's quite difficult to do. Um, if that strategy helps more people get into um, home therapy, then that's great. Um, it's good for us. It's good for them. It's good for our overcrowded hospitals. So have a look at that and see if it's something you can put into practice. Next, we're going to have talk about um, quite an interesting group of patients, actually, the ones that will challenge you over the years. And that's that, oh gosh, do you remember that patient you saw the other day with abdo pain? You know, that phrase which strikes fear into every emergency physician. Well, if you're like me, you will have that slight anxiety in discharging patients with this sort of quasi-diagnosive of non-specific abdominal pain, which is a bit rubbish, really. And why do we have that anxiety? And it's probably because we all know of patients who bounce back with more serious pathology later. And has that been missed, or is it just because you're seeing on the early part of the journey? Difficult to know sometimes, but we, we all know. If you've been in the game long enough, you'll know about these sort of patients. So it does happen um, for a long time. There's not a lot we could do about it, but On the one hand, we can't simply admit everybody with non-specific findings. And on the other, we're kind of worried about missing something significant. So, interestingly, in my own practice, um, we've got the opportunity to bring patients back to um, a surgical hot clinic, usually within a few days for follow-up and further assessment. Um, But we don't really know much of the effectiveness of that kind of strategy. So this month is an interesting paper. Wendermaker et al look at the outcomes of a scheduled non-specific abdominal pain patient pathway returning to clinic within a few days and they found a significant change in management actually in about a fifth of patients probably slightly more than I thought actually Um, and they've looked at factors which predict that and it's things like CRP on initial visit being the best indicator of a change in diagnosis of treatment. And despite the relatively high number of changes to practice in this sort of service, I think it still has the potential to reduce the number of patients we have to admit. And that's obviously good for our health economies and possibly better for patients, too. So have a think about that. Next, um, oh gosh, an area of practice which I've got to say I've not been doing for a long period of time, but it's still out there. And that's the use of exercise testing in cardiac patients. So... uh, Going back, thinking back when um, we were doing some of our early chest pain work here in Manchester, there was a bit of a vogue for using stress testing amongst ED patients, so actually getting it done within the ED. But I think with the advent of things like high-sensitive troponin testing, combined with um, better risk stratification um, scores, it seems to have declined within the ED, I think certainly within the UK anyway. Um, but what about patients we send home? Because sometimes we're sending them home with a, you've not had a myocardial infarction, but not actually a diagnosis of whether they've got um, ischemic heart disease, I suppose. Um, so should we be following those up um, with outpatient testing? So Cook et al. in Canada follow a cohort of over 4,600 patients, big numbers, and several of them actually had significant cardiac events having been sent home um, if they didn't have outpatient testing. So whether this is applicable to all patients and whether we should be doing it, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly something I think we should consider if we lower the threshold for people going home so that we're sending more of a high risk cohort home. So have a think about that. If you're changing your heart strategies um, and your myocardial infarction strategies and your risk stratification strategies in your hospitals. And then we move on to an interesting paper from Matthew Reid. Now, again, Matthew Reid has published a lot in the journals it's um, excellent chap works up in Edinburgh. He's got a really impressive track record at looking around syncope, a lot of academic work going into that over many, many years. So it's very interesting to read a, about a pilot study in the journal looking at the detection of um, arrhythmias, or dysrhythmias if you prefer, we can have an argument about that, in patients presenting to the ED following syncope. Um, using ambulation monitoring. So basically sending them home with ambulation monitoring. Not something we do in, uh, in, in my part of the world, but it's an interesting idea because that is one of the major things we're worried about. And so although this is a pilot study, um, so it's not completely definitive, the findings suggest that we would need to look at this, I think more closely, because um, one in 10 patients in the study identified a clinically important diagnosis on monitoring. So our syncope patients, they do always worry me as we're often discharging without a firm diagnosis. And so further evaluation like this may well be something that we we're underutilizing at the moment might be something for future systems. Although it is a pilot study, so we need to just take that as a caution and think about future work. But I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something bigger from Matthew and his group coming through soon. There's also a nice paper looking at stroke deterioration. So this is particularly focused around pre-hospital care and we've all seen patients who deteriorate after initial assessment in our any well neurology patients, stroke patients. And that deterioration may represent a secondary event and or a failure to address preventable injury. So In quite a large study from the US, researchers have shown that about 12% of patients with suspected stroke deteriorate within the pre-hospital window. It's quite large numbers. Question remains, though, what sort of interventions are possible within this term period? And also, even if they're possible, will they make a difference to outcome? Now, I don't want to get into the big stroke debate here about whether thrombolysis or CT scanners in the back of ambulances are, are a good or a bad thing. That's for another day. But it's kind of that sort of thinking is, is there a window of opportunity there which we're not yet getting into? The jury's out on the evidence, but have a look at this and see if you think the numbers are big enough or not. And then lastly, we're looking at a paper from the Netherlands, and it's looking at tools to predict admission. Now, we, we do get a lot of papers in the EMJ looking at tools which are used to predict events such as admission or death or intensive care stays. And That kind of does reflect one of the key roles in emergency medicine, you know, that predicting the clinical course and hopefully improving it. But whether or not the tools that we're using are appropriate for that task is actually quite a philosophical question, really. But this month, we have a paper from the Netherlands um, that looks to derive a model to predict admission from first contact and triage. So can you actually spot them as they come through the door? Mm, Yeah, probably some of them is my overall thoughts at the beginning, but specifically... Age, triage category, arrival mode, and main symptom predicts. I guess you probably expect some of that. The question will be whether or not we can use that as a benefit to patients or a benefit to our system so if we can have predictive models as people arrive then will that or will not help patient flow through departments and things like that there is a quite a lot of work around this Um, i'm yet to see anything which really robustly makes a difference and has been demonstrated to make a difference but it's important that we look at it so if you're interested in hospital systems and ems systems look at this so that's it for this month in terms of the podcast but there's loads more actually in the journal you should go and read it because i haven't got time to talk about it all here so go and have a read in the journal get in touch via twitter facebook well carrier pigeon whatever floats your boat just get in touch let us know how you're doing and say hi oh and did you notice that the emj's impact factor has gone up we're now over two so over the last few years impact factor has been going up and up and up and up and up and we're doing really well actually as a you know a really respected international academic journal that's increasingly being um, respected and valued for the papers that it publishes. So, if you are a researcher, if you're interested in publishing and you've got good quality stuff, eh, we're here. You know how to find us. We're on the interweb. Have fun.